This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. As communities continue to grapple with a harmful and ineffective justice system, many are wondering if the system is doing exactly what it was intended, and if so, what role restorative justice could have in restoring the system and the people. Today, we talk punishment, policing, and restorative justice with Angela Rose Myers. Angela Rose was elected president of the Minneapolis NAACP in November of 2020 at age 25, making her one of the youngest NAACP adult branch presidents in the nation. She currently serves as the board chair for Minnesota Freedom Fund Action, an organization dedicated to ending cash bail and pre-hearing immigration detention. She also does policy work with restorative justice practitioners and families who have been impacted by police violence. She has traveled around the world engaging scholars on social justice and public policy issues. Angela Rose, thanks for being down to Get Uncomfortable. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So can you tell us, you know, tell us a little bit, we did your intro, but tell us a little bit about your work, especially as it relates to organizing and policy. Yes. So, you know, most folks, they know me from, you know, when I was the president of the Minneapolis NAACP and, you know, doing a lot of work there. I was in touch with a lot of families who had lost loved ones um, due to police violence. A lot of black folk in our community who, you know, they face racial discrimination at work and housing and a lot of these other areas. And so I at the time was 25. Right. And I wanted to just acquire more tools to help my community. So I went to graduate school. I'm getting my master's degree of human rights. And in this program at the University of Minnesota, I've been really tangling with how to, you know, really engage with my community still and stay like super active while balancing my studies and my academic interests. And so lately I've been doing a lot of work. Um, You know, there's, it's been actually very amazing that through the U that I've been connected with folks at the office of the high commissioner of human rights at the United Nations And they asked me and a research team to do work um, researching uh, police surveillance and harassment of Black activists Um, in the U.S. The first report that we sent to them was particularly looking at police surveillance of Black activists in uh, Minneapolis. And this was at the same time that the um, Minnesota Department of Human Rights released a report saying that, you know, the patterns and practices of the Minneapolis Police Department violates, um, you know, Minnesotans' human rights. You know, I I call it uh, social media blackface. So essentially, you got a police officer who creates a social media account um, and puts, you know, a picture of a black person up and is, you know, names it, you know, Laquan and then goes and friends Angela Rose. And I think it's a black community member in Minneapolis. Why not? Like I who, you know, what do I mind? 
And then that person starts, you know, harassing the activist, um, or even, um, you know, there was a case of a civil rights activist here, the officers knew about her birthday party, right, because they had done this uh, digital blackface, and they showed up and try to um, shut down the birthday party. And so, you know, that type of surveillance, that type of harassment. So we sent that to the UN and now we are um, going into part two of our research that is more about um, folks impacted and um, the black families that have been impacted by um, who've lost loved ones to police violence and how they create networks for healing, for justice, for liberation and their stories. And so we're um, compiling those stories to send to the UN right now. So that's that's a way for me to still do research, still think about, um, you know, these policy questions, advocating for policy issues. Um, I do that also with my, um, I'm the board chair of a C4 organization, uh, Minnesota Freedom Fund Action. And they do a lot around like um, changing the criminal legal system and in cash bail so, but I'm able to kind of like bridge these different parts of me, these parts that are, um, that have always been rooted in this community, have uh, always wanted to just be around people and support the voices of others, um, particularly those most impacted. And in this work, my focus is on the criminal legal system, whether it be policing or, you know, um, basically jailing or the mass incarceration system and also on the other end how we as black people we subvert we um you know organize to liberate ourselves we self-emancipate ourselves from these systems as well so it's kind of twofold you can focus on the system and you can focus on the people right um and really looking at how we are building beyond these systems of oppression. And that's my that's my work. That's my research. And that's also my activism. So I'm happy that I can do all of that. When I think to add as, as an old head, I'll call myself an old head, the systems, the people, and yourself, because you're a student, right? And so to be able to intertwine, you know, Sometimes those are things that are hard to pull apart, right? When you're intertwining what you're studying, shout out to the U. Anybody who knows the Twin Cities knows that the University of Minnesota is referred to as the U, uh, not them folks in Miami. And to have programs that you can not only learn but apply the work that you're doing and you can create kind of that synergy between what you're studying, the impact on people and the impacts on policy, and then also feed yourself as a student, that it can't so often activists have had to choose between their educational pursuits and the work. Um, but the power is to be able to intertwine those two things. When I'm listening to you talk, and I think probably folks are like, geez, this is a lioness right here. This is bad, right? Yes, 100%. But I am drawn to thinking about some of the work of Fred Hampton. And one of the greatest experiences of my life was I was sitting literally in a car with Bobby Seale one day. 
and it was just me and him and I was dropping him off, right? So I'm just dropping him off because he was doing a speech. And I just said, you know, bro, do you need me to grab you to get anything to eat or do you need anything? No, brother, what questions do you have? Angela Rose, that's Bobby Seal in the car. What questions do I have? This your opportunity. That brother talked for like two and a half hours and I just listened, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think about the impact that young people have had on all movements. When I think about the age of John Lewis standing on that bridge mm-hmm. in Selma, mm-hmm. when I think about Fred Hampton, who died in his 20s, right? Early, early 20s, Bobby and Huey and their impact. Dr. Davis, when she was doing that, she's always had a lifetime full of work. But And then thinking about you, talk about kind of the role in the mm-hmm. movements of today, the multiple movements, the mul- multiple impacts on policy, as well as the impacts on people. What is the role young people and the involvement uh, in today's movements of social change? Yes. No, the young kids, the kids are doing it. The kids are out here. Okay, so the kids are already civil rights leaders um, in their own right. And I think about after the murder of George Floyd, it was a lot of youth, right? It was a lot of kids who were out there. And I mean, so we were the NAACP. We were organizing to protect black businesses, right? Um, in North Minneapolis, which is kind of like the black corridor for Minneapolis for folks who don't know. And one thing that we did see was uh, basically like when the protests were happening, a lot of the city was shut down. Right. So after curfew, which was like a five, six o'clock curfew, there was no transportation. Um, There was no buses. There was no, you know, uh, light rail, nothing. And yet I would get messages of someone being like, hey, I have an 11 year old that's out here. Like they they're protesting. They came out to protest. I got a 13 year old. They their grandma told them they couldn't be out here, but they're out here. Like, how can we find them like some transportation home like, you know, some I'm going to say this. There were times things got very real. Um, I mean, we all saw it on CNN. We all saw it, you know, on television. It was uh, things were burning down. And um, at times, you know, there were teenagers out there and you're like, okay, how can we get some of these kids home? So that was also part of like that organizing. But then what you saw also was kids who came out and they they were leading the protest. They was there was kids uh, a year later with uh, the Adair Chauvin trial, with um, the Dante Wright um, murder, right? There were kids who were coming out and they were leading the protest. They were organized. They were asking for policy changes, not just, you know, being out there. And I think that's one of the things that folks don't always see was that they were also bringing in the experiences that they were uh, facing in the schools. And they were highlighting that too. There's a lot of racist schools out here uh, in Minnesota. One thing that um, we were talking about the suburbs earlier, right? One thing that's happening in the suburbs is the suburbs are getting blacker, right? And so they're having more 
Um, the kids are young. The young kids are blacker and blacker every year. There's more kids, black kids in these schools. And the white teachers do not know how to handle this. And then they're also coming, butting up against white families that live in places called Coon Rapids. Okay, Coon Rapids, Minnesota. And they don't know how to act, right? Um, when this largely black and brown population just seems to, quote unquote, have emerged in their neighborhoods. And so they they were bringing up how racist these schools were. They were mm. leading um, in school walkouts. There's this organization that I really admire called uh, Minnesota Teen Activists. And they are a fantastic organization led by two young brothers, Jerome Treadwell and then Tygen Hall. And they're really, you know, they're really great uh, organization. I think I might have gotten Tegan's name incorrect, but I'm going I'm to double check on that for you. Well, but, and yeah. what you're saying is because what people, people that aren't in the Twin Cities don't know is that Blackness in the Twin Cities is complex because you have Somalis, you have Liberians, you have families who are immigrants, and then you have Black American folks. And you have these intersects between the indigenous community in the cities and the Black community that has went on since the 50s and 60s there. So you have Afro-Latinos. So the reality is you have immigrant folks and families who have emerged in that community, some of the largest Somali organizations in the country, the largest Liberian organizations there. And then you have Black Americans and you have Afro-Latinos. It's, it, the only thing that it compares to to me is like New York City. Right. Mm -hmm. Because of the immigrant population, then you add the layer of Southeast Asians and Hmong and and Lao and Cambodian folks. And so what's happening is that the original Minnesotans that talk with the Minnesota accent, they are few and far between. Mm -hmm. And they are hold trying to hold space in those suburbs that that were their places while North of Minneapolis was the place for those people. So talk, give folks kind of a, a snapshot into what, help us understand what restorative justice is and kind of explain why you think it is important, why it's an answer as far as policy to changing systems. Yes. So I think that this is actually a great um, through line because there's a lot of restorative justice that's happening with the youth and in the schools. Right. That's usually kind of like where um, ever since the school to prison pipeline, you know, that, um, you know, I that that idea was discovered. Right. Of, oh, you know, there actually is something here. There are steps here that link schools and detention to prisons. Right. To someone's probability of going into prison, let's start it at the stop at the beginning. Let's stop it at um at school. Like that's that's in the pipeline in those schools. So restorative justice is a, a framework, right, that is rooted in the idea that a uh, there isn't just like a victim offender, right? That that's how we kind of usually kind of thinks about these things. It's not just a victim and offender. It is when instances of uh, crime happen, violence at times, arguments, because restorative justice can even be about just like uh, mediation. It doesn't always have to be around, um, you know, a crime the way we think about crime. Um, when that those instances happen, there are people at the center of that. 
people and who need something for the community and who need to take in accountability. They need to take, um, you know, maybe even they need resources for them to be functioning members of this community. So what can we do, right, to make sure that those individuals that are at the heart of these instances get what they need to become functioning members of our community? So that's a reframing, right? A lot of times what that will look like, you'll have restorative justice circles. And so for circles, you'll have elders, social workers at time, you'll have the offender and you'll have, you know, the victim and you'll have time. That's the best part is like you take time and really going around and talking about and sharing and creating a dialogue that is beyond, oh, you did this and now you need to be punished. But rather, how can we move so that everyone in the circle, not just the victim and the offender, gets what they need so that there is a harmony again, a balance is restored to um, the community and to that circle. So that is like one aspect. Restorative justice can be, you know, manifested in a lot of different ways. Um, but it really is going from a punitive carceral mindset to uh, from throwing people away, right, to what can we do in our community to heal soul wounds, to heal, you know, community wounds, and to make sure that nobody is thrown away, but everyone are functioning members of this community, that our community's well-being is at the center of how we, you know, want to move forward. So that's the framework of restorative justice practices. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And and I think you you said so well, we have this punishment culture. And then we use words like prisoner rehabilitation, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to rehabilitate people who there may be reasons, right? And there are. There are reasons systemically in our society that mm -hmm. people have a higher probability of all the things. Sometimes it's just, I couldn't get the right lawyer because I'm poor, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. then you're sitting in a place, you know, shout out to Khalif Browder, God rest his soul, who the brother wasn't even convicted of anything. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be convicted of anything to be in jail. Mm -hmm. You can just be poor and mm -hmm. not able to get an attorney or not be able to post bail or not able to do whatever. And you are just sitting there waiting and being victimized. And maybe you're there because you're mentally ill. Maybe you're there because you have a drug addiction. Talk a little bit about why this concept of punishment and rehabilitation doesn't work. Talk about in your experience, why that doesn't work for victims, it doesn't work for systems, it doesn't work for the people, and it doesn't work for the so-called offenders. Mm -hmm. I think about, so something that recently happened in pop culture was um, the Megan Thee Stallion versus uh, Tory Lanez, right? But it wasn't, that wasn't what it was. It wasn't Megan Thee Stallion versus Tory Lanez in the courts, right? What it was was Megan Thee Stallion, who was harmed by Tory Lanez, shot by Tory Lanez. This is a fact. The fact that, you know, we have to get to a place where we say this is a fact. Um, shot by Tory Lanez, right? She didn't press charges against him. 
in her ideal world, like just, you know, getting to a point where the world believed that this happened. She didn't even actually want to tell people at first. Right. But she was victimized as a black woman in the media. Right. Um, But she was actually subpoenaed. She was subpoenaed to testify in his criminal trial. And that was something that she had. She was not willingly. She did not willingly participate. When you are subpoenaed, you have to show up to court. And then, you know, when you're when you take the oath, all of those things, you can't commit perjury. Right. So you got to tell the truth. So and if you don't appear, let me just throw out you are subpoenaed. And if you don't appear, you become a criminal. Exactly. Right. So you have to, whether it's you want charges to be pressed or not, these are the state's charges in the case of Tory Lanez. Exactly. Sorry, Angela Rose. Go ahead. No, but you're absolutely correct. And so um, she, as a victim, didn't have power in the situation. Right. And what I've been hearing and talking to a, a number of folks around restorative justice in Florida and in Minnesota is that there's many victims, right, um, who do not have power in the situations, whether it is even even the folks that do want their uh, perpetrators to go uh, be, you know, locked up X, Y, Z. Um, they don't have any power in the situation when it comes to criminal charges. Prosecutors do. And so with restorative justice frameworks, this is more about really getting them in the room of what do they need? um, What is it that they need when it comes to accountability for from that other person? And so uh, when it comes to the folks who perpetuated the crime, it doesn't look always like going to jail is going to solve that like that that issue throwing them away never really solves the root issue of what what was it that triggered them to do this what was the lead up to events what is it that they needed right and this you have to work from a frame of mind when we're doing this the frame of mind that healthy grounded people do not commit violent crimes okay you have to work from that frame of mind first healthy and grounded people who have people who have everything that they need to sustain themselves and are healthy and grounded they do not perpetuate violent crimes right so what is it what is it that that person needed what is it truly that was at the heart of them actually you know the lead up of them committing this crime and a lot of times it is stuff of people didn't feel you know protected people had you know past traumas people were abused themselves um there's a lot of different systemic issues that goes into you know why is it that we do see these um crimes in our communities and it's really that's i mean that's the thing is like the US has the largest amount of incarcerated people in the world in the world, if we if the uh, fallacy proved true that prisons solved crime, we would be the safest, you know, we would be the safest mm. country in the world. And we are not. And if it proved true that prison solved crime, black communities, I got all these black people up in prison would be the safest communities. Now, we know that that's not true. It's not true at all. And so let's reframe instead of throwing away our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, fathers, uncles, sons, daughters, everybody else. Why? Like, why are we throwing them away out of our communities 
and to essentially be indentured servants and slaves and um, somebody else's community, somebody else's community that actually gets to count them, right, when it comes to federal funds to go to uh, Shakopee, Minnesota, instead of federal funds going to the Black community in Minneapolis, right? Uh, that's that's a side thing that goes with the census and counting. There are some really interesting you brought up, you know, foundationally restorative justice. And there's, you know, some folks prescribe to these principles, encounter, mm-hmm. repair, transform, right? Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about are the those areas and these principles that are within restorative justice. And if you prescribe to those three, or are there more, are there less? In your perfect world, what are some of those foundational principles to restorative justice um, to you? Yeah. And I should also note um, that restorative justice isn't a new thing, right? So this is something that societies and Native American societies and also societies in West Africa, you know, like around the world, this idea of essentially let's get to the bottom of the situation with people and nobody gets thrown away right nobody gets thrown away what we do is we ask what the what do people need what do people need to be restored to the ideal healthy human being who can go but, on and contribute but to society angela An- yeah. angela rose the one thing with that is though when that happens right mm-hmm. it has to start is what what do we lack mm-hmm. because what do people need in part people need things because we lack things Mm-hmm. We as a people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we as black and brown folks, we as a society lacks things. And you're absolutely right. And that's that's why I think when we're talking about like what are the tenets or the foundations of restorative justice, that is it too. This is not just something I, we have to break out of the individualistic, you know, mindset, kind of neoliberal mindset of every man for himself, whatever you get is what you got. Um, and further analyzing and interrogating these systems that fundamentally harm us, perpetuate harm upon um, Black communities and Brown communities and Native communities, like perpetually set up a hegemonic contract, right? Uh, Mills was one of the things that Mills talks about is a racial construct. And then John Stuart Hill, Hall also talks about this. John Stuart Hall also talks about um, kind of like the social constructivism of race. And this is, again, critical race theory. Don't be so, you know, what? whoa. Um, but that these systems perpetuate harm on us because they create, you know, an oppressive hegemonic system, right? Where we will never be our full embodied beautiful black human selves because we cannot be it does not benefit the white oppressor for black folk to be healthy whole living you know our beautiful black selves black lives and you know actually engage in our modes of production because 
then how can they exploit us? How can they exploit us um, through the mass incarceration system other than to, you know, further slavery upon our people, to further taking folks from our communities, knowing that taking folks, the just stealing folks from our communities, it, it hurts, it harms, it creates soul wounds. That's one of the terms that in public health they use. And I'm not just coming up with this. This is stuff from public health, sociology, policy analysis, critical race theory. These are terms that, you know, I think sometimes we're like, oh, this is a little frou-frou, right? And it is like, there's a little level of let's break out of um, kind of like this mindset that we're in, right? That it is every man, every dollar, pull yourself up from the bootstraps, everything that you've been taught your whole life, that it's always been you is the problem. And what? why does Ron DeSantis want so much for us to not study critical race theory or Black studies? Because Black studies, you get into this. You get into mm. why, you, you get into why is it? Why is it that America was set up on a system of slavery and then quote unquote became the greatest nation in the, in the world Right. Because they were wealthy, but that wealth was built on exploited labor. So why is why are these systems still in existence? So then it calls on you. Black studies is a call to action to interrogate imperialistic, capitalistic, oppressive systems and then not only to interrogate them, to demand their restructuring, demand their abolishment, to break them down and to liberate ourselves. Black studies is a studies of liberation, of liberation work. So why don't they want you to learn critical race theory? Because they know how race is intertwined into every fabric, every thread of our existence and our reality. And racism is the construct that is keeping us down. And they're embedded in the oppressive systems of this country and of this world. So yes, we have to interrogate it. And critical race theory just gives you a language to do that. Did you That's need right. did you need critical race theory and, you know, these, you know, big words like, you know, hegemony, you know, all of these social constructivisms? Do you do you necessarily need those words? No. But a language gives a legibility to communicate and to organize to tear down these systems. So. Yeah. Angela Rose Myers, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for all your work, not just on policies and systems and people, but your all of our continued work on ourselves. Good luck with your studies. Thank you for making the time for us today and sharing all of your wisdom, your knowledge, and your leadership. Thank you. And can I just say one more thing? What you can I really say whatever like you want to. About this is uncomfortable conversations. Is this you know, I really believe in, you know, you're in you're in education, so you know this, right? It's like the point of true learning and true growth is that point of being uncomfortable, right? It's that you're uncomfortable for your muscles, uncomfortable for your mind, right? That's the point of growth. And that's going to be the point of our liberation as well. So thanks. Oh, Angela, we're, Rachel's going to steal that clip and we're going to make an audiogram just of that, sister. Good. I, I think I, it came to me and it sounded better than it sounded in my mind. So mm, it sounds good. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, really appreciate you. Let me know if you ever need me for anything. 
No, I got you. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between Adam Smith and me, Rachel Hansen. There are a number of ways that you could support the show, and we would appreciate any support you could give. Uh, You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can send us an email, and our email addresses are in the show notes. Or you can share an episode with a friend. This will help us to build community and promote true healing through uncomfortable conversations. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.